Of course, men can't really wear the crown of the sky, Father. Only a replica of it done in tinsel paper. I don't call it so in contempt. Paper crowns have their legitimate and, within the proper context, their serious uses. They are, in the long run, not much less absurd if imagination mend them than all earthly crowns. Welcome to the Riosverse. I'm your host, Chris Rios, and you're listening to the Paper Crowns Podcast, the place where our art and ego collide. Welcome back to the Paper Crowns Podcast, everyone. So glad to have you here. That voice that you just heard was C.S. Lewis. As I mentioned before, he is my most favorite author that I've ever experienced in this world. And I'm so happy to have that clip to share with you guys. So that was actually part of the clip that helped inspire the name of the Paper Crowns Podcast. And uh, he just so happens to be the person we're going to talk about for this episode. As I battled my resistance to figure out what we were going to do for... The Paper Crowns podcast during this pandemic and what we're all going through, I, I had to really try to figure out what kind of content I wanted to put out. Now, generally, this, this is going to be an interview show. We're going to sit down with other artists. We're going to talk about certain things. However, with uh, the social distancing guidelines in place and the stay-at-home orders, cannot really do that. Now, believe me, I did battle the <laughs> the little devil on my shoulder who's like just call people up, invite them over, and, and you know, it'll be fine, you know, only invite people that you know that have been quarantined for more than two weeks, uh, it'll be okay, uh, you know, your family's healthy, and, and they're healthy, and, you know, they'll, they'll break, uh, they'll break proto, and, and <laughs> come over to the house, and it'll be fine, we'll have lunch, it'll be good, and I realized that this is flying in the face of all the hard work that is being put out there by our folks who are essential workers trying to take care of people who have gotten sick, who have played those same games of take the risk, it's fine. And I realize that as much as I love this show and as much as I love providing content for you guys, it would be irresponsible of me as an artist and creator and father to invite that kind of risk into my household or even that kind of risk onto my guest. And so I, I really had to think of an idea of, of what I could do to, to help keep content flowing because I really do believe that if you do not flex a muscle, it will atrophy and you will lose all, all momentum, all energy that you have built up there. And my greatest fear is is losing the momentum and energy that I built up in this show. So I've really been playing back and forth with the idea of what am I going to do. And in that uh, time of battling the back and forth as to what this show was going to be in this uh, time apart, I realized that time itself was not waiting for me and it was going and going. And Saturday just passed and I had not put out an episode. So I told myself tonight, you got to put out an episode. You gotta get it going. You cannot pass up on this opportunity. You cannot let this muscle atrophy. So, very simply, I had to decide what could I do on my own. I've already kind of run the gamut of people who 
I could interview within the household. My wife and I joked about uh, throwing on our two-year-old and just having him babble and maybe like, oh, that's very interesting. So when did uh, that inspiration hit you? And him like, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, oh my God, you're so, this is such a great conversation. And that becomes like a joke episode, but he wasn't interested in playing. <laughs> but uh, but the truth is, guys, is I, I had to think of something that I could do to offer you some kind of in, uh, content that will be fun and interesting and help you learn more about myself as your host on the Paper Crowns podcast. And so the last week we did the bonus episode with uh, Stephen Pressfield, and we went over Stephen Pressfield and all his wonderful uh, quotes that helped steer me back onto the right track of creation. And so I said, who can I highlight now that would highly define a, a bit of myself and a bit of who I am? And that plays an integral part of this show. And immediately C.S. Lewis uh, came into my mind as someone who I could highlight and spot and give some love and praise to. And hopefully, if you have not uh, read any C.S. Lewis's books, you could uh, hop you know, hop on that and, and get to learn some. Uh, his books are absolutely legendary. They've been around forever. And they offer such a unique insight into what I feel is important in this world. And he had a, a serious magic about him on being able to do that. So, And so with the topic of C.S. Lewis, I just wanted to go ahead and cover, you know, briefly his life uh, and who he was and what he experienced in his life. And then go into his art and the things that inspired me and how I got introduced into his stories and his magic and the things that he had and what great influence it had upon me as well. And uh, like I said, this is all going to be kind of off the cuff. I didn't have much time to prepare, much equivalent to episode zero. I just been kind of waiting and waiting and waiting for an answer to present itself as to what I'm going to do for this show. And uh, I could not wait any longer. So I, I sat my ass down in a chair and I said, it is time to produce. It is time to create and just trust the muse and trust that it's all going to come out and be something great. So hopefully uh, you guys will approve and you'll learn something in the show here. So to bring it back to that opening clip that you heard, this was from uh, Lewis's book, the Four Loves, where he talks about the four different types of loves that are innate in the human experience. And uh, it all gets pretty detailed and philosophical, way more than I think would be entertaining in a quick podcast. So I'm not going to go too much into it, especially since uh, it is also heavily influenced into uh, his Christian ideals and things like that. And if you are not one who is interested in exploring those avenues, it could uh, get you lost pretty quick trying to get in all those details. So, uh, But uh, it, like I said uh, in episode zero, it was actually the inspiration to the name of the podcast, the Paper Crowns podcast. Let's go ahead and give that quote a listen one more time. Of course, men can't really wear the crown of the sky, Father. Only a replica of it done in tinsel paper. I don't call it so in contempt. Paper crowns have their legitimate and within the proper context their serious uses. They are, in the long run, not much less absurd if imagination mend them than all earthly crowns. In that quote, Lewis says, it is beyond man to put on that sovereignty crown of, of the God crown. You know, we will never have a God crown. We'll only have an imitation crown, whether it be of tinsel or of paper. 
but uh, it'll be a, a false idol, to be to be precise, in comparison to God. He defends it, though, quickly in stating that. He says, you know, but I'm not going to knock on, on paper crowns. You know, paper crowns have their place. And not only do they have their place, but they're equally as important as to any real crown that any person would want to carry. To me, when I heard this, it, it really sparked an image in my head that all artists are wearing their paper crowns. All artists are putting on a level of sovereignty to define themselves in this world. And Lewis, in all his wisdom, understood this. And even though he was quick to call out how it is an imitation crown, nonetheless, it is also just as valuable as any other crown you will come across. And I I, I loved him for that. I loved for him sharing that with me and, and sparking that bit of uh, thought. And so, uh, when I had to come up with a quote for the opening of this show, I was like, oh, if I'm doing C.S. Lewis, I need to grab that quote that talks about the, the name of the podcast. And that quote is actually, uh, the audio is, is, is the only surviving audio uh, from C.S. Lewis that you can find in The Four Loves, uh, which I got through Audible. Uh, also, an amazing tool for anyone who is interested in learning and getting some new information, especially now if uh, all you're doing is playing video games or eating uh, your way through the night, <laughs> definitely get Audible, get some books, educate, learn. Uh, I have a tremendous library with Audible and, you know, it is 15 bucks a month. And with that 15 bucks, you get uh, a credit uh, as well. So even that you're, that $15 is automatically going to uh, money well spent. It's not a, a wasted subscription as you can get with other things. And that $15 can go to, you know, a 40-hour course on ancient Rome or the history of Christianity or, you know, whatever, cooking, whatever it wants to be. Uh, if there's a class there, if there is... And an audio version of whatever it is that you're interested in learning, you can get a massive college course for just the $15 that you pay every month. And I think that is a tremendous tool for anyone who's looking to expand their own knowledge and expand their own base. So definitely check out Audible. A huge thanks to them for even having uh, The Four Loves recorded and even more uniquely, it being read specifically by C.S. Lewis. And uh, it was uh, it was such a treasure to to hear him because you will have so many so many authors that you will come across in life, and you will always kind of make up your own voice for them if they're no longer available to hear. I mean, we can only assume what Shakespeare's voice was like, and we can get the most passionate actor to get up there and 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 take his place and deliver his lines and act the way we think Shakespeare would act, but we don't know. So it's a real blessing to be able to have the actual physical voice of someone you idolize on record that you can go back to and hear. And I just love hearing C.S. Lewis uh, read this book because his cadence and the way he delivers things, his intelligence is just so apparent. And he never talks in a way that is to degrade uh, a less educated person. If he ever speaks too highly, he'll backtrack with common verbiage that would uh, help another person understand. But he he loves going on all of these uh, very detailed and extravagant uh, spells of, of language, you know, as a wordsmith will do. And uh, it, it really is a treasure to hear him talk. So 
Thank you, Audible, for having uh, the original audio of of C.S. Lewis reading this book, The Four Loves, because it really is a blessing to listen to. And I encourage everyone to go out and listen to it as well. So C.S. Lewis, we're just going to dive into his life, kind of figure out uh, who this guy was, what he experienced, and then what he created and how it affected me as an individual. So C.S. Lewis was born in 1898. That is a very long time ago. (laughs) He was born uh, November 29th, so he is a Sagittarius. Booyah. Uh, (laughs) And uh, he was um, a pretty well-off child. Uh, He was born in Ireland. His family had some money. Uh, They had uh, different estates all, all across Ireland and... He was always accustomed to big houses, big mystery houses. If you ever seen um, a little princess and she's like in this gigantic, you know, old style house. And there's just hallways upon hallways and big curtains and tapestries and hidden rooms that haven't been touched. And, you know, it's such a mystery to to explore. Uh, this is what C.S. Lewis grew up in. This is the household that he grew up in. He grew up in a house that was so massive and so big. And he he had his imagination to help him explore that. And with that, he also had an older brother who I, I believe was three years older than him. And him and his brother, uh, Warren, created a world called Boxen. And it was absolutely filled with anthropomorphized animals. So animals that could stand up and talk and cook and battle and all these things. C.S. Lewis was absolutely in love with this world. And uh, you can see how it definitely influenced a lot of his later writings, especially when it came to his children writings, which blew my mind. You know, when, when I first read all of the Chronicles of Narnia, I was like, well, this is the guy's life's work. Like, this is it. <laughs> And then I find out that, no, 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 uh, he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia in the later stages of his life, way after he had been an adult for a very long time. And to me, I thought that was so impressive, because to me, I mean, to come up with something like the Chronicles, I'm like, this was his life's work. This was everything he put everything into, and and this was the first book he, he wrote. And then I learned that, no, no, this was at the tail end, when he was trying to do something that was... Mo, you know, more meaningful than than anything else he had ever done, and it just made me fall in love with it a little bit more. But but to get back on track, you know, with with C.S. Lewis, you know, him and his brother always had this huge imagination of writing stories and creating characters and drawing pictures, and I think that really resonated with me because it was an innate ability in myself as well to imagine these things and and to imagine worlds and to come up with all this stuff. And to learn that C.S. Lewis was no different really touched me. And I was so happy to learn that. Now, as lovely as his life was and filled with mystery and exploring and and all these things, it was not without tragedy. And this story is it gets extremely sad because around 1908, his mother was dying in this gigantic house and... She had servants who were caring for her, but she had cancer, and there was no way to even think about curing that at the time. So he kind of just watched his mother deteriorate 
at a very young age and then he had lost her forever and he couldn't do anything and this really traumatized him in a way that uh kind of manifests later on in his life but you know after his mother had died his father sent him away because his father was apparently kind of a I don't want to say cruel, but he was just a, he was a hard dude. Being a loving father who could entice the imaginations of, you know, his children and, and whichever just wasn't what dads did at that time, especially when the mother passes away. So dad did the only thing he figured he could do with two boys, and he sent them away to other colleges and schools to learn. And this is where C.S. Lewis, who was raised Christian, actually deterred from his his faith and and became an atheist because just like myself going through catholic school you come across stories that just don't make sense to the human soul and you can be told by pastors and preachers and 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 priests and whoever it may be that you know this is done this way for this reason but to any child who is experiencing pain there's no logic behind there and there's no understanding as to why a god would make a world like this. You know, at age uh, 15, he often said uh, that he was angry with God for not existing and then equally angry with God for creating the world they were in in the first place, which is a, a common feeling amongst people who have not come to any kind of understanding of any higher power or, or just feel helpless and, and don't know how to deal with this world that they're struggling to comprehend. And so to escape Christianity, he actually found his way back to older faiths, don't say older faiths, but different faiths. Especially in Ireland, he, he went back to Celtic paganism. He looked back into the Norse gods and things of that rather, to learn their mythology and their power and, and their creation myths. And he got uh, involved in a bit of the occultism, which is understandable, you know, because you want to sit there and go, you know, what is the other uh, side of this uh, balancing beam that I'm being presented with? And so he kind of went into uh, other studies to just kind of have a basic understanding of what else was out there in the world. And he also often quoted Lucretius in saying that <clears throat> had God designed the world, it would not be a world so frail and faulty as we see. And this is, it's a fair argument, you know? I mean, you got to sit there and go, you know, if, if this is a world created by God, why does it have so much pain? And I mean, this is a child's argument because once you get older and once you experience pain and you experience what comes with pain, especially growth from pain, you understand why it's there because there's no way to get to the other side of understanding or growth without pain, without loss, without sacrifice. And that lesson is the reason why we're in a world like this today. I don't want to get too philosophical myself, but uh, it, it is an important thing to understand. And uh, I can see, all I'm saying is that I understand C.S. Lewis at, at this point in his life where, you know, he has lost his mother and he has been forced to experience all these other things in life and be kind of left alone. And any person who has been told to believe that there's only good things for those who are faithful out there 
and then to be given such loss, any person would turn away. But luckily, that's not the end of our story with C.S. Lewis. As he got older and his knowledge grew even greater and greater, he was given many more opportunities to explore college and and get high honors. Uh, but the uh, issue here was that uh, World War One was breaking out, and uh, at the lovely age of 19, he was sent to the front lines, and he experienced trench warfare. So uh, not only were you <laughs> forced to watch your mother deteriorate in front of you, and then your father pretty much told you that he had nothing he didn't want anything to do with you, uh, and you get kicked out, and you get sent to all these different schools, you lose your faith, you <laughs> study all these different things that uh, have more of a dark understanding of what the world is, and then, bam, all of a sudden, at the ripe age of 19, you're being sent to the front lines of war to kill other human beings. I mean, this is crazy, and, and he had such a different look on surviving this war. I mean, he was doing it to protect others. I mean, there was a level of, of chivalry that, that he acquired from this. But in, make no mistake, he often talked about how devastating the loss of life was and how it, it, it really crippled him. He had a, a good friend who he had made uh, on the front lines, and they said that if either of them survived the war and the other had died, that they would take care of that person's family. And uh, C.S. Lewis kept that promise, actually. His friend, uh, whose last name was Moore, had died, and C.S. Lewis kept his word and, I want to say, adopted his sick mother <laughs> into his life and, and took care of her until she herself had deteriorated. But even then, that was at, at a much later time. You know, and, and this uh, figure, this motherly figure that was uh, a, a caring mother who loved her son, and now her son had uh, died in the war, only to have uh, his friend come and say, I made a promise to your son to take care of you, and I'm going to do that. I'm going to keep that promise. And he did. He kept that promise. This woman lived with him. He took care of her, fed her. He, he did everything he could to make sure that this woman lived to the best of her abilities eventually she did reach an age that she had to be put into a nursing home and uh she did pass away then but even then c.s lewis visited her every night every day and until the staff would escort him out the building to me that is such a profound promise to keep and make and man i'm getting teary i think about it it's just to Love someone, and I'm not talking about the, his friend's mother, but to, to love his friend that he made so much and to experience such a, a devastating time together that the loss of his friend's life compels him to keep such an amazing promise. That is, that is such a beautiful thing about about the human existence on this planet. And, oh man, it touches me. It really does. <clears throat> anyway, C.S. Lewis, uh, he, 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 with this relationship that he shared with this wonderful woman, you just have to remember back to his own mother and how he had lost his own mother and how this was really a chance for him to really appreciate 
and love someone else as his mother and be there for this woman and to let her know that he appreciated everything that a mother could do for him. And seeing that how he had lost his mother too early in life, he was willing to stay with her until the very last moment to make sure that he didn't miss any other moment with a mother again. <clears throat> he goes, uh, he, he actually gets wounded in war. He makes a, a few other friends uh, and they're sitting right there with him. And uh, a bomb had missed its mark and blew up just feet away from C.S. Lewis. And this injured him uh, pretty terribly. Uh, he did mend. However, his other friends that were with him uh, died. They did not survive their wounds. And so C.S. Lewis was honorably discharged from uh, the Royal Army. And he went uh, back to school. And uh, so he learned and became a master of, of all certain honors, uh, a master of history, a master of mythology. I mean, this guy, he studied nonstop and then he became a tutor and he taught others. Now, uh, as World War Two broke out, uh, he was much later in his life and he wanted to give back to, you know, Her Majesty. So he wanted to reenlist. They wouldn't let him. Uh, one, because he was older and he was already injured, but also at this time, because of the writings that he's already done, he's seen as someone who should not be lost in, in this war. So they kind of put him aside. They kind of want him to write propaganda. And he's like, no, I'm not going to do that. Screw you guys. And so instead, uh, he decides to read a lot of his uh, Christian writing, things that, that brought him back uh, to Christianity, because as you know, he was an atheist until eventually uh, he met someone who just in talking and conversation changed his life and his viewpoints. And that was J.R. Tolkien, who is the author of The Lord of the Rings. And him and, and Tolkien and Lewis were actually really great friends. They spent a lot of time together. They, they bounced information back and forth off each other. Uh, they helped influence their writings a lot of characters within their books are based off of uh, one another. And this, again, also touches me to my core because, you know, I have a best friend who uh, I did this very same thing with. And, you know, I know how much that person means to me. Shout out to Gary Roth. I love you, Barrow. Um, And so I can just sit there and imagine being C.S. Lewis and sitting across from Tolkien and and kind of going back and forth as artists and, and, and helping each other grow and thrive. But Tolkien, who was a, a devout Catholic, helped shape Lewis's thoughts and, and fears of uh, Christianity and atheism. And he helped bring a harmony to all those thoughts, which created this whole wave of philosophical thought of, of Christianity and what it meant to be a Christian and how there are core principles of Christianity, and this became his famous writing, Mere Christianity, which say that all human beings follow a natural law, and that we are compelled to follow this natural law. Is There's two, two rules of it, is that one, we all acknowledge that there are certain things that we should not do in this world, and two, we break those rules. <laughs> 
He goes, and that right there is the uh, is the total dialogue to understanding that there is something else out there that binds us to this structure. And uh, that's what compels him to dive deep into what are those things then? What what creates all those different avenues for us to pursue? He's amazing. <laughs> anyway, so during World War II, he went ahead and uh, gave uh, these talks over the radio, kind of like a podcast. Uh, but he uh, <laughs> he held these talks and he just spoke about mere Christianity and his outlook on everything. And I, I have a quote from one of the soldiers of World War II who talked about Lewis's writing. So this quote comes from Air Chief Marshal Sir Donald Hardman. He writes, The war, the whole of life, everything tended to seem pointless. We needed, many of us, a key to the meaning of the universe. Lewis provided that for us. Ugh, yeah, and so um, I can only imagine, I mean, having the power to reach out to thousands of people who are unsure of whether or not they're going to see the morning because an air raid could destroy their entire house and family. And in that dark time and uncertainty, C.S. Lewis got on the radio and he just spoke to people about what he believed and what he loved about loving God and how there was a purpose for all this. That's power. That's something beautiful. I hope we all have an opportunity to do something like that for someone in the world. Man, Lewis is great, man. I tell you. But yeah, and then, uh, you know, time is being what they were. England went ahead and kind of shipped all their children away to safer areas, uh, which I, th I don't know if I'd be down with that. I mean, that is, imagine being an eight-year-old kid and being told, we're going to put you on a train with other eight-year-old kid. And once that train lets out, some adults that we don't know are going to take you and put you into a house. And uh, you're going to be there uh, living in this house with people that we don't know. Uh, but it's better because it's better than having a bomb dropped on you. So good luck. I love you. Safe trip. Like, <laughs> this is something that England did. They, they, they rounded up all their children during World War II, and they shipped them off uh, to places where, you know, the, the air raids could not reach them, which one is very admirable because it's like the children are the future. But two, it's kind of like, I don't know if I would ever give up my child like that. I don't know, different times, I guess, man. It, it blows my mind. I, I can't imagine doing that, you know, handing my two-year-old to, you know, my 12-year-old and saying, you're going to go on a train. And then looking at my 16-year-old and being like, I guess we got to go grab guns now, and and this is life. That, wow, man, that, it blows my mind. It really does. But anyways, we, we digress. Uh, so at this time, uh, England grabbed up all the children and sent them away, and to which point Lewis was the happy recipient of three children who spent time in his house. Now, this was something that helped inspire the Chronicles of Narnia because the first book that was written was The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where this same exact scenario happens to the four main characters of the book. Because of World War II, they're being picked up and sent to a stranger's house to live until the war times calm down. And it is this insight from the children that Lewis took care of 
that helped him build the personalities of these characters and how scared they were and the need to escape the the heartaches of that life and the fears of that world and he felt that any child being placed in that scenario deserves another world to escape to and this is where he created the lion the witch in the wardrobe which was one of the first books that i remember being given by my mother my mother gave me the book it was her old book and it was a library book that she had never returned because it had the little numbers you know from on the side and and uh i remember her giving it to me and and saying like hey this is one of my most favorite books i would take a flashlight and i would read it in my mother's wardrobe and i would beg and 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 pray that the wardrobe would turn magic and i'd be able to go there it just makes you think of like how much stories and books help us escape the world that we're living in now it was the first time that i felt in and an aura of magic about my mother because you know i was always influenced that my father was the creative one you know he was the one who played games he liked cartoons he's the one who drew you know he was just that funny creative person and so when i saw this window of imagination creep forward from my mother it really blew me away because i was really touched at the idea that she was an awkward child who escaped into books the same way that any of us do. And I, I remember it was it was an eye-opening experience to learn that your parents, uh, especially one of the ones who was a bit more stern and disciplining, you know, was also a child who had an imagination and wanted to get away from this world. <laughs> so... That alone, The Lion Was the Wardrobe, made a huge impression on me. And then when I read it, it really, it really touched me because the story itself is so childish, but not in like a discreditable way, but in a pure and, and clean and precise way, an innocent way that we lose when we get older and so this story which follows four children who go into a whole other world who experience an evil witch who are accompanied by talking beasts who then eventually overcome this witch with the help of a, a magical lion and rule as kings and queens of this world for years uh, i mean it is it is a child's dream i i can see how any child of that time who was experiencing war and who was experiencing the loss of not just one parent, but your entire family, and not just mother and father or brother and sister, but aunts, uncles, grandparents, everyone was gone. When you were being sent away, you weren't being sent away to your grandma's house. You were being sent away to a total stranger's house who, if you were... Lucky enough was very well off and could take care of you, uh, depending on who your parents were, I would assume. Uh, I'm sure there was lots of children that were not that fortunate, but to any child who experienced that, 
or any any child who experienced it and then grew up and then found Lewis's book, I could see how this was something that tapped into a bit of that human soul, a bit of that immortality, that this will never grow old. This is a story that never grows old. And this is a story that even if you are in the year 2020, and even if you're a child or an adult, you can read and connect to if you have the eyes to see. And even at the age that I was when I read this book, I I can't say, maybe I was eight, maybe 10, I don't know. But even at that age, reading this book, I could see that there was magic here. And not only magic that was appealing to me at the time because I was a creative child, but because I knew that there was a deeper lesson within this book. Now, within the book, you have two brothers, two sisters, it starts off they're playing hide and seek, and the one little girl goes into uh, <laughs> she goes into a tiny room. Once again, they the the children are shipped off into this massive house, and the lord of the house is uh, this old professor, and he has all these rooms and all these corridors and you know unvisited uh, bedrooms and, and things that have just been you know left there. Once again based off of Lewis's childhood home where he was actually taking care of these children, you know, in the real world, you know, aside from the book, once again, the inspiration for the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. So he kind of emulates that same scenario in the beginning of the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. So you have these children exploring this massive house and Lucy, the youngest, the youngest child goes into also my mother's name, by the way, (laughs) which I thought was very, very fascinating she goes into a wardrobe uh, during a game of hide-and-seek. And as she is trying to find the back of the wardrobe, she actually steps out into a wood. And in this wood, she comes across a fawn. Now, a fawn is half-man, half-goat character. And you, you probably have related to, uh, to Pan, you know, a, a kind of a mischief god in the fantasy world and uh, who always is playing a flute and stuff. But she comes across this little fawn, uh, who's Mr. Tumnus is his name. And Mr. Tumnus is carrying a parcel and everything like that and an umbrella. And this was actually the first drawing that C.S. Lewis had created uh, when trying to ground out the the the, the story of the Lights in the Wardrobe. He drew this little fawn character with, you know, parcels, gifts, and uh, a little umbrella. And he was in love with this image so much. He was like, this image deserves a world. It deserves a story. And so he built it around that first image. And it's the first thing that Lucy sees when she heads into the, into this world. So she meets Mr. Tumnus. And Mr. Tumnus is fascinated with her because he is like, you're a human being, as he calls her. You're a daughter of Eve. And he's like, I've, I've never seen a daughter of Eve before. And so they, you know, go have some tea. They talk and everything like that. And then we learn that Mr. Tumnus's intentions are noble to a point he does really like lucy he loves the conversations they have but his intentions are outlined with a little bit of deception we learn that if anyone in the land of narnia has seen a son of adam or a daughter of eve that they are to detain them and hand them over immediately to the white queen the white queen is the one who rules over narnia currently she keeps it perpetual winter and never Christmas. And we learn that she has quite the beef with any son of Adam or daughter of Eve. 
And so anyone who comes across them is to either kill them or capture them and hand them over immediately. And this makes Tumnus start to just wail with guilt. As he and Lucy have a wonderful evening, he starts to become more and more distraught at the idea of what he actually has to do. And he comes to the conclusion that he can't go through with this. Lucy is too sweet. She's an amazing person. She's a great friend in the little time that he's met her. And so he begins to wail and cry and apologize for being such an awful fawn. And Lucy encourages him and says, no, no, you're a great fawn. You're the best fawn you know, I've, ever, I've ever met. And, and you're my friend. And I know that you would never turn me over. And so Tumnus decides to take Lucy back to the woods where they met so that she can have a chance to head home safely, which is actually by a lamppost, which is in the middle of the wood out of nowhere. Very confusing to the first reader. But uh, yeah, there's this lamppost in the middle of the forest. And Mr. Thomas goes, well, this is where you came in. If you just keep getting to the forest, hopefully you find, you know, your your world that you came from. And so she does. She heads back and she falls out of the uh, out of the wardrobe. And she's like, oh, my God, I've been away. It's been hours. And, blah, blah, blah. and they're like, what are you talking about? We just finished counting. And this is where you get kind of the idea of like time in Narnia does not work the same as it does in our earthly world, which was another fascinating concept for me when I was a child, because you're just always taught that everything's linear. Everything is the same. And uh, to be to experience a, a, a book that says that, oh, you can go into this world and hours in this world will be seconds in your world. Amazing. I loved it. <laughs> Uh, anyway, slowly, surely, she starts convincing her. Everybody thinks she's crazy because she talks about this fawn and this other world. And then eventually, something happens where they are trying to hide from, you know, their their caretaker in, in the house. And Lucy's like, I'm going to go to the wardrobe. And they're like, crap, let's all go to the wardrobe because that's a good place to hide. And so they go into the wardrobe. And as you know it, they all fall out and, and find their way into the open wood. And now this is where they actually get confronted with uh, some other uh, beings of, of this world. And uh, they start hearing about how Aslan is on the move. And they learn that Aslan is this godlike creature of, of their world, which is Narnia. And that he's going to be coming. And when he arrives, he's going to bring a new era of peace to Narnia. And then you learn as well, equally, that... Narnia has actually been in control of an evil witch for centuries. But the arrival of uh, the children uh, is part of a prophecy which says that uh, when the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve arrive and they sit at the throne of Caraparavel, which is kind of like their capital city in Narnia, uh, that Aslan will come back and restore beauty to the land. And yeah, and, and, and this story hits a lot of points that mirror Christianity uh, mythology as well, Christian mythology, where you see there's a point where Edmund, who is the uh, youngest boy of the children, uh, he is given an opportunity to betray them. Uh, he meets the White Witch, and the White Witch enchants him with uh, a certain food that he finds to be irresistible. And so she goes, all right, well, if you tell me where your brothers and sisters are, I will go ahead and give you all of this delicious food you want. 
and you will be my special help. And when, you know, they're brought to, you know, justice, you will be at my side and you'll be my prized uh, helper. And Edmund, who was always kind of like the middle child and told he was stupid and wasn't as good as his older brother and all this stuff. He's like, hell yeah, I'm in. And then you find out that he betrays, you know, his brothers and sisters. They get captured. And uh, Aslan actually comes to the land. He shows up, you know, introduces himself to the children. And, you know, he is a fierce animal. He's not like this majestic uh, Mufasa type lion. He's a wild animal. You know, he's fearful. He strikes fear into those who want to fear, but also he strikes power and inspiration. And so when he arrives, the children all feel something different from him. Some feel that, you know, he is regal and, and, and royal, but others feel that he is uh, dangerous and, and wild and, and, and he should not be around. You know, you know, no one should be around this lion. And that's Edmund's first impression. He looks at, at uh, Aslan and sees that, that he is this vicious creature that can turn and eat them at any point. And he hates the fact that he is, you know, at the mercy of this ferocious beast. You know, that they have to praise this ferocious beast that has the power to kill all of them in one, you know, paw swipe. You know, he doesn't like that. He wants equal power. And so he leaves his brothers and sister. He runs away to the White Witch and to tell her that, hey, listen, Aslan's here and my brothers and sisters are with him. So this whole prophecy thing is is coming up. Let me get more of that food, if you don't mind. And uh, the queen, learning that Aslan has appeared, uh, ends up binding Edmund and treating him like trash. And then Edmund realizes Oh shit, I was <laughs> I was not going to be her friend after all this. This was all a trick to betray my family and he feels absolute pain and and regret for the decision that he made. And so back at the camp in in Narnia, the children realize that Edmund has run off uh, to betray them and they plead with Aslan, do something, save him. And so Aslan you know, says that he knows exactly what to do, and he approaches the queen who has gone to the stone table, which is uh, one of the, it's like Stonehenge of Narnia. It's a very, 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 very ancient place uh, that is filled with deep magic, which is like the code of the Narnia universe. And so, uh, she plans on sacrificing Edmund on this stone table. Aslan arrives and is like, hey, you gotta let that kid go. And so the queen is like, bitch, please, like, you know, in the deep magic, where evil is bound, you know, anyone who is a traitor is evil, and so belongs to me. And since he betrayed his family, he is rightfully mine. And so I will do with him as I please, and you can't do squat. And so <laughs> Aslan's like, bitch, you don't tell me about the deep magic. I was there when it was made. So, <clears throat> and she's like, okay, all right, well, you know, still, I, I'm right. And he goes, all right, then, well, how about this? You kill me to let him go. You release Edmund, and I'll take his place. And so she's like, dope, let's do that. And so she ends up 
sacrificing Aslan on this stone table. Spoilers. And uh, <laughs> he he dies. He, they bind him. They whip him. They 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 do all these things. They break his neck and they, she cuts his throat and all this other stuff. You know, it, it's very brutal. It's a very brutal scene to experience. And then Edmund, who, who has now been freed, cannot believe that this creature that he had feared this this fierce lion this wild beast that he uh hated for for having so much power and for being at his mercy he that this this creature just sacrificed himself without question to save his life and it helps edmund see what aslan you know the greatness of aslan and the girls, you know, uh, Susan, who was the eldest uh, daughter, and Lucy show up there as well. And they see his broken body and, and you know, they, they clean him, they fix him, and he comes back to life. You know, he, he is resurrected and the, the children can't understand. They don't understand what just happened. And they're like, but, you know, the witch killed you. And he goes, yeah, but that hoe don't know about the deep magic the way I know about the deep magic. And if she knew, she'd understand that anyone who sacrifices themselves for the life of another will live forever. And so she thought she killed me. But the reality is, is that with the sacrifice, I live on forever. And I will never be killed. You know, I could never die. And my strength will always be greater than hers. You know, big hoorays all around. <laughs> and we learned that, you know, the the children and Aslan have a, a chance now to be reunited as brothers and sisters. And accept the greatness that was Aslan. And with his strength, take on the evil of this world. And they do. <laughs> they They do a great job of of overcoming the adversities of of uh the white witch and they save narnia they go ahead and they take their thrones at care Paravel, and they become the kings and queens of, of old and they uh, actually stay in narnia for many many years i think about 20 years i think it's how long they ruled as kings and queens of narnia and they uh have forgotten all about the world that they they left they're all adults now, and they're extravagant, and they're speaking in that old English-timey voice. You know, well, in my head they were. And then uh, they are actually on this hunt in Narnia for this white stag, who uh, in lore says that if you catch the white stag, it'll grant you a wish. And so they're like, oh, this is dope. We're going to catch this white stag. We're kings and queens of Narnia. This is awesome. And in their pursuit of the stag, they come across the lamppost and they're staring at it and they're like this is familiar and then they further they go deeper and deeper into the wood together they're 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 going through the trees and then all of a sudden all four of them fall out of the wardrobe again but they're no longer adults they're no longer kings and queens they're just the same children that they were from when they first entered the wardrobe hiding away from their caretaker and they realize what they've just experienced and how 
since time is different in Narnia than it is in the real world, that release, you know, coming back from the world, from Narnia into the, the regular world, that they have become children again. And their journey into this other world and what they've experienced of battle and war and loss and greatness just help them deal with the world that they have returned to. And even though they've come back into this war-filled world to which they have been, you know, secluded away, they understand what they've faced now. And they actually face this world of war with the dignity and understanding and faith that an adult would have. So it's a real blessing for them to have gone to Narnia. And unfortunately, when they try to head back into the wardrobe, the doorway to Narnia has been closed and they're not able to head back in that way until much later books. But the Chronicles of Narnia uh, in the Lion, the Wardrobe, fascinating, fascinating story. And you can really delve deep into all of the, the stories and all of the all of the metaphors of that book that match Christianity. Uh, of course, Aslan is, is the Christ figure of that world. Uh, and even he speaks of his father. And Aslan, the, the whole stone table scene is relevant to the crucifixion and, and the sacrifice of, of Christ, which is the one staple that I hold on to when I say that I am a, a believer in Christ is because I understand that when it comes to Protecting the ones that you love, there's no greater sacrifice than taking their place. If there, if I could do anything and prevent pain to my family and my loved ones, simply by stepping and being like, I'm the one who is going to take all this pain for them, uh, I would do it a thousand times over because that is what that is what a parent does and that is what a savior does. And in the line of the wardrobe, that is what Aslan does. Aslan steps up and, and, and takes that play. I mean, and then Edmund, of course, uh, it plays the role of Judas, the betrayer. You know, he turns on his family in order for his own riches, uh, only to be given, you know, the, the truth that uh, his, his sin was unforgivable. But this is also a part of the story that uh, as I got older, I realized no one talks about. And that Judas is always portrayed as, you know, this black mark of, of the Christ story. But the truth is, is that Judas is almost as equally as important to the Christ story and the fulfillment of the prophecy uh, as Christ himself almost. And I think Lewis understood this. And that's what the whole redemption for Edmund is, is all about. And in the book, there's a point where Edmund and... Aslan talk in quiet and the other characters are, are seeing it and you see them talking alone together but you never find out what was said and this is where I believe you know Aslan reassures Edmund that even though he had sinned and betrayed his family that he is still an integral part of their success and how he can be forgiven and and how his actions from this point forward are what will redeem himself. And I think that in the Christ story, Judas, who is portrayed as 
the most, you know, one of the most evil villains of the Bible, I could only imagine that when the time came and when he crossed over and when he stood before whatever creator was there, the first thing he saw was Christ there with open arms saying thank you for making the hardest decision and being the one to betray and fulfill the prophecy of what was needed in order to save the human experience. Now, I'm sure I'm going to hear a lot of blowback on that, but Christ doesn't die for our sins <laughs> unless Judas is there to betray him. So, I mean, there's got to be a level of, of forgiveness in there for him. And this is just another story that plays out in the Kraus Gonaria that, that C.S. Lewis eloquently delivers. Now, beyond the Chronicles of Narnia, because I could talk about the Chronicles of Narnia forever, because there are seven books, uh, and I will finish out with just a, a quote uh, from the last book called The Last Battle. But I do want to talk about one of his other amazing stories that highly influenced my own life. And this is this was during my, my phase out of uh, Christian faith, and... You know, I don't want to say phase out, but kind of like phasing in and out. I was, I was trying to find my avenue, and I came across a book that C.S. Lewis wrote called "The Screw Tape Letters." Now, if you've never heard of the Screw Tape Letters, go ahead and buy it because they are phenomenal. Uh, I it's so hard for me to wrap my head around the writing process that Lewis had to go through to do this, but he is, and this is where I think his studies in the in the occult really shined bright because. The book is so well written. Uh, so the the book are, is just a collection of letters, one way. So it's not it's not you know a dialogue. It is a, a one one way conversation from a head demon uh, in hell called Screwtape. Now Screwtape is writing letters to his nephew Wormwood. Now Wormwood has put in charge of the particular damnation of uh, an individual on earth and Screwtape, who is you know one of the high demons of hell you know he's been extremely successful in damning the souls of many a human uh, he is giving a lot of advice to his nephew wormwood on how to properly damn a human soul so <laughs> just that alone is fascinating when you think of like what the premise is and so uh, Screwtape writes letters to his nephew Wormwood. And uh, as you progress, you know, the letters, it's his responses. You don't see Wormwood's responses at all. You, you, don't, you don't ever hear anything written by Wormwood. It's only by Screwtape. And you learn what's going on. And you learn the frustrations of Wormwood. Because, you know, Screwtape will be like, don't let it get you down, Wormwood. I understand, you know, this is going on, but... You know, you really have to focus on this. And, and one of the things that I absolutely loved about this book that really transferred into my own philosophy of what sin is, because I had a person uh, in a philosophical conversation I was having one time who said that sin is the same across the board. You know, it's black and white. You do right, you do wrong. And everyone has the same, uh, the same consequences. And I argued, I was like, I don't think that's right. Because I don't think that, you know, one sin equals another. I think it all depends on where the individual is as to what the sin is equal to. And they were like, no, that's you just trying to be apologetic, you know, towards sinners. 
she was a real Jesus freak, by the way, who I loved getting into fights with. Uh, I'm sorry, not fights. I loved getting into debates with uh, at that point in time in my life. I would seek them out just to have debates. And uh, this girl in particular was just saying that, you know, all sin was equal and all consequences of sin are equal, which, you know, is it eternal hellfire and things like that. Uh, and I was arguing that, no, that's not the case, that depending on the individual is what, you know, the, the consequences will be for the sin and not so much what one particular person believes goes across the board for all others. Now, I'm going to bring this back to Screwtape, of course, because Screwtape uh, is actually talking to Wormwood, and apparently Wormwood is having uh, trouble finding things to get this guy to deviate from his faith in God, you know, the, the character that he's in charge of, of damning. And apparently Wormwood is saying, like, you know, he's just so squeaky clean, I can't get him to deviate anything, you know, I can't get him to commit murder, I can't get him to uh, steal, I can't get him to uh, commit adultery, I'm doing everything I can, I can't get him, you know, to budge a bit. And this is where Screwtape goes, no, 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 you're, you're thinking too big, you need to start small, you need to start with little things. And he goes, if you really want to damn a human being, you really want to sway them, you don't start with adultery. You don't start with murder. You're never going to get anywhere. You got to start with the small things, the small sins. And he goes, for instance, if he kneels and prays every night, all you have to do is convince him not to kneel. Don't kneel next time. Simply lay down in bed and you can, you know, full, you know, put your, your hands in prayer there. And, and that alone is such a great step towards the damnation of a human soul and i really love that excerpt because it really puts into perspective you know the little micro steps that we give into that that you know that devil on our shoulder that gets us to create you know to fall through on a bigger sin i'm not saying that if you don't kneel when you pray you're going to go to hell but i'm just saying through the eyes of a demon to sway a human being to something much greater. You have to start somewhere small, which was telling the human being that it's okay not to kneel. And it is the deviation from what is normal. It's the deviation from what the human being feels is correct is what constitutes as sin. And so I loved that Lewis wrote that because it just helped edify my own viewpoint of like, it doesn't matter what's on paper, what you think sin is. All that matters is what it is to the individual and what they feel is particularly wrong or damning because you inch them towards that damning role and eventually it's going to snowball into something much more chaotic. And for someone like Lewis, who was a Christian writer, who, who spoke you know, all these beautiful faiths on Christianity and understanding and philosophy, to come out with a book on exactly how to damn a human soul, it was <laughs> it was so amazing to see because it showed that you have to understand both light and dark, and you know to get a, a, a true picture of what it is to be knowledgeable. And I, I just love the Screw Tape Letters, man. It's definitely one of his greatest books, and I highly recommend you to go into if you are not into. Uh, any of his other Christian Christian super good writings, even though 
most of his writings are super critical of the Christian faith and just rephrases certain ideals of the Christian faith into a modern understanding through logic. Uh, but even if you, if you were like, oh, it's not my bag, check out the screw tape letters. I mean, in the end, the the message is still the same as to what a human needs to do in order to avoid damnation or to avoid compromise of their own soul. Uh, but it's definitely painted on that dark side of the universe. So, uh, yeah, give, give, give that one a look, the screw tape letters. Now, to keep with the theme of learning about C.S. Lewis and his life, we're going to dive back into those later years and when after he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, he did meet uh, a woman in his life. Now, this woman's name was Joy Davidman Gresham. Uh, she was an American writer who was in a pretty rough relationship, and she fled the U.S. with her two sons, uh, and she met Lewis in England. Now, uh, Lewis was really fond of her. He thought of her as a, a really great intellectual and a great friend. She herself was an atheist that converted to Christianity. She was just very well-spoken and well-educated. And it was because of all these things that he had learned about her, her story, her passion, where he felt that uh, it was a great idea to to join with her as a companion and to do a civil marriage. Uh, so they would become married, uh, uh, not uh, in a Christian church, just kind of like a, a formality. They would get married. He wanted to make sure that she was able to stay in England with her sons, and uh, he really enjoyed her as a person. Uh, however, it wasn't uh, the most romantic relationship. Uh, you can, uh, there's a quote here from Lewis's brother, Warren, where he says, For Jack, now now Jack was a close name that C.S. Lewis preferred to be called by his friends and family. It was actually uh, his dog, dog's name was Jack, who was hit by a car when he was four years old. And he was so distraught by it that he uh, only answered to Jack himself. So when he was a four-year-old kid and his dog died, people, you know, call him by his name, which was Clive Staples Lewis, which I did not mention earlier. But uh, he would say, no, 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 my name is Jack. I'm only going to respond to Jack now. And his family was like, all right. And so uh, <laughs> a lot of his close friends and uh, family call him Jack. So in a lot of these quotes, you'll see Jack this, Jack that. Uh, so for, from his brother, Warren, this is a quote from his brother uh, pertaining to uh, C.S. Lewis's relationship with Joy. He says, for Jack, the attraction was at first undoubtedly intellectual. Joy was the only woman whom he had met who had a brain which matched his own in suppleness, in width of interest, and in analytical grasp and above all in humor and a sense of fun. Now, as beautiful as their relationship was, it wasn't uh, destined to last forever, as Joy was diagnosed with bone cancer. And this was a very difficult thing for Lewis to face, because cancer had a horrid way of finding its way to most of the women in his life. If you remember, his mother had died, and then his surrogate mother had passed away. And so now the woman who was one in a million to him, uh, no other woman could hold a candle to her. Now she was forced to lay upon her deathbed and, and become ill. And this pushed Lewis to really seek a fulfilled marriage. And what I mean by that is 
you know, originally it, it was done through the courts. It was a formality to keep her in England with him and keep her sons there as well. And it wasn't spiritually rooted. But with facing the possible loss of this woman who he has come to uh, love and, and who had become to be his best friend, he really wanted to push for a Christian marriage that was, you know, sanctioned by the church and, and by his faith. Now, the issue was, is that, you know, she had already been married uh, and divorced. So the church was like, eh, we don't really know. But uh, upon the deathbed, Lewis was able to get a, uh, a friend of the Church of England to actually come in and perform the ceremony at her deathbed. And so at one of the darkest times where things aren't looking good, Lewis felt it was so important to share whatever time he had left with her as not only his civil partner, but as his spiritual partner. And that's so incredibly intimate for a person who is spiritual and for a person who understands wholeheartedly what it, you know, what a beautiful and sacred thing is to to be that connected to the person that you love. And to see that Lewis was not willing to live a life where the possibility where he never shared that connection, that spiritual connection with the woman he loved, that he wouldn't let that happen, I think is so incredibly romantic and beautiful. And as he did this, you know, I... The Lord smiled upon him because her cancer kind of went into a remission and they were able to spend a couple more years together, uh, which was, you know, if I were Lewis, I can only imagine how much of a miracle that would be to where you feel you were about to lose your wife and you love her so much that you decide to make a, you know, to make the spiritual connection final between you and your creator and her. And by some miracle where she was, you know, about to take her last breath, she, she pulls through and she gets healthier and she gets better. And this allowed him the time to spend a bit more, you know, time with her. Unfortunately, it would not have been for forever. What little time that he had with her, which was, I'm sure, beautiful and filled with as le- as little stress as possible and as much warm and appreciative and loving moments that they could probably muster together, she unfortunately had her cancer come back. And she did not make it much farther than the two years that they were able to spend together. Now, Lewis wrote a book about his loss called A Grief Observed, and it described what he felt in the most purest and raw form and how he tried to deal with this loss. And it was so uncharacteristic of what he typically wrote that to distance himself from the book, he actually went under another surname. And the book became so popular that as he was grieving and as he was dealing with the loss of his wife, People were bringing his own book to him and saying, listen, we came across this book and we really think that it's going to help you (laughs) get through this dark time. And he was like, yeah, thanks. (laughs) And uh, and I think that's a bit that that's funny because the pain that we go through and that we manage to put out there as our own therapy can clearly be a sign that it is therapy for others and even more so it can be brought back to you so it's like he was trying to he was he was so ashamed of the things that he wrote and he was so fearful that how poorly people would look upon him for being 
so quote unquote weak or lost that uh, it was brought back to him as a symbol of strength and as a symbol of recovery. Like, hey, this this pain that you were ashamed of, uh, please take a look at it because it's beautiful and it'll help you get through this dark time. And I think as he was trying to avoid that message, it was beautiful to see that the universe brought that message right back to him by his own friends bringing him the book and saying, it's written by this other guy, but I'm sure you'd like it. <laughs> or I'm sure it'll help you. Now, as much as I love celebrating Lewis's life, I think his death is also a bit fascinating. And it was something that I did not learn much about until, you know, only a few years ago when I had looked into it, like, oh, when did he die? <laughs> and when I looked into it, I was actually pretty shocked because I'm always wondering, like, you never see any celebrations of, of Lewis's life or you never see any, any memorials for him or, or anything like that. And then when I looked into it, I was like, oh, that that's why. So, I mean, Lewis was getting very, very ill. He had a, a blood illness that uh, he had become plagued with. And it affected his teaching and things like that. And he became very, very ill to the point where his doctors were like, you need to slow it down, take some rest. And he had uh, quit his job. He had went back to his home in Ireland where he wanted to rest peacefully but it was apparently due to kidney failure and heart attack that uh, had claimed his life. And this was on November 22nd, 1963, one week before his 65th birthday. And if uh, this uh, date sounds pretty familiar, that's because the U.S. president, John F. Kennedy, was assassinated that very same day, just one hour after Lewis had died. Now, another famous person who passed away that same day was actually British writer Aldous Huxley. He's the author of Brave New World, which uh, I myself have not read. But from what I've heard from everyone who has read it, it is a pretty fucked up book. So uh, I'm very interested. <laughs> and uh, from what I understand, it's a, a, a very dystopian outlook on the future. And a lot of people are comparing it to kind of the world we are in right now. So maybe it's just fitting I do check it out. So even though my favorite author, C.S. Lewis's death, is overshadowed by deaths of uh, two other people that were pretty up there in the world, it is still safe to say that he is one of the greatest human beings to have walked this earth. And how I am so happy to have learned his writings and his teachings and that I was able to share it with you today. Now as we go ahead and, and we're rearing up the end of our, our study of C.S. Lewis, I do want to bring up the last book that was written for the Chronicles of Narnia. And it's a book that definitely dives into the idea of loss and passing on to the next world, and more so what we can look forward to once we get into the other side. Now, uh, as you can probably guess, you know, Christianity phased through most of his writing, C.S. Lewis, uh, and this book, the last book that he wrote called The Last Battle, which is what he created to tie a bow onto the entire Chronicles of Narnia world, which very seldomly do does an author do. They don't want to put an end to their world. Uh, but Lewis truly puts an end to his world. Like he goes apocalypse style and, and the end of days in, in the world of Narnia. 
and uh, it was definitely one of the most beautiful things I've ever read. I don't really want to go into it just because it is such a tearjerker ending, but not of sadness, of, of joy, of absolute joy. He paints this world which, you know, through war, through a battle, it ends in absolute joy, which is the message that I think that gets lost in Christianity. You know, when you talk to anyone who is an atheist or has issues with Christianity, it's, it's always the authority that that comes from the church that people are not easy with. And I, I, I co-sign on that. I don't like authority. I don't like people trying to force something down my throat. And so, but what I do love is the joy that you experience when when speaking about God and when and the joy that you experience when thinking about what may be beyond this world we're in now. And in the last battle, C.S. Lewis totally hits that mark. It was the first book that I ever hard cried to, you know, like I need a pillow to cover my face so I could be like <laughs> Because it, it was really that good. And I'm going to read just the last paragraph of the book. <clears throat> because I really do feel it was amazing. So Aslan is speaking to the characters of the Narnia world. And he's delivering them some really beautiful words. And he goes, as he spoke, Aslan being, as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world, and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and which every chapter is better than the one before. And on that note, we're going to take our leave of the Paper Crowns podcast. I do hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you enjoyed learning about C.S. Lewis. I hope it encourages you to go out there and learn more about him or learn more about something and really connect with the stories. Because I think in this time, in this day and age, even if you're holding up okay, I'm sure there's someone out there who who isn't. And even if it's through a message or an email or a video chat, or a phone call. If you learned something in this episode that can help someone else cope with the world we're finding ourselves in, I hope you share it with them. So many times where I felt scared, or alone, or depressed, I turned to a book. And within that book, I was able to find the friends that I needed to help me work through whatever I was going through at the time. And at a time like this, when we're all in quarantine, and we don't have the ability to be there for our friends like we normally are, you never know that if sharing a book or a podcast or a story can have the positive effect that a person needs to save their life. I think we all need a friend right now. And we shouldn't forget that books have the ability to do that for us. 
if you know that there are some children out there who are not dealing well with this time, I mean, my children are fine. They love being in their rooms. But maybe you have a nephew or a niece or a cousin or a brother and sister. Or hell, even a mother and father, a grandfather, a grandmother who is having a really tough time and are looking for an avenue of escape. I can't think of any book better than Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. As that book helped me escape, as it helped my mother escape, maybe too it can help someone you love escape this world that we're finding ourselves in right now. With all the uncertainties that we're facing right now, we could all use a bit of certainty, even if it comes from our own imagination. And for all of you out there, please stay safe. Please stay home. We can beat this thing together. I hope and I pray that we all come out of this with a much greater understanding of what it is to be a human being and what it means to take advantage of the time that we have here. And as for all my creatives out there, if you're looking for something to help stifle your imagination, check out C.S. Lewis. All of his writings are great for that. So thank you so much. Hopefully you uh, enjoyed this uh, different take on the Paper Crowns podcast. Hopefully we can get back to normal very, very soon. Have some guests on real quick. Talk about everything we've done in the meantime. But please check out the Rios verse. Check out the stories and letters and drawings all there. That is thereelsverse.com. Please subscribe there. You can get our newsletter, hear about all the different things happening. You can also check us out on all social media at The Reels Verse. And also you can check us out at The Paper Crowns Podcast on all social media as well. Like, subscribe, share, review, all that stuff. And uh, we'll see what happens with The Paper Crowns next time. Love you guys. Take care.